you as a gift today. So if you all could stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Romans 12, chapter 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. If it's your first time here and you're wondering why they cheered me on, it's not my good looks. Um, I haven't been here for a while. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I've been on sabbatical for uh, a season now, and so uh, that's why people were cheering. I want to say just briefly, um, I'm so glad to be back. That goes without saying. So glad to be up here. Um, and I really just wanted to take a moment and, and, and extend a huge voice of gratitude to our elders and to our staff as well as to Morgan and I, our, our friends and family that are in this room, because that's what we consider you guys to be. Um, thank you for praying for us continually uh, and just being so faithful to encourage us. We got so many encouraging, uh, even text message, like, like randomly. My phone was off for like three months, so then when I turned it back on, I get all these like flood of encouraging texts from some of you. I just want to say thank you guys so much for considering me and considering our family. Um, God's been so faithful to us through our time away. And so um, I'm going to have more time to reconnect at our members meeting this evening with you guys. So I just want to encourage you, if you can, if you can make it out, I'd love to, to talk more about our time. Um, but until then, I just want to say I'm so glad to be back, so glad to be up here, honored to be up here. Um, and, and, and I also just wanted to make uh, one, one specific big, huge thank you for someone who took a huge role, uh, a burden that my, my role kind of went uh, nil and non-existent, and this person took on that role in a, in a big way. I just want to say thank you to Joseph Turner, who's in the back. Um, he worked tirelessly alongside our elders, but he took the brunt end of the pastoral uh, ministry on our staff and, uh, and has just worked uh, tirelessly for, for six months now. So thanks, Joe. I love you. Uh, you did great. Um, that's the last nice thing I'm going to say to you for a while. So, okay. <laughs> I got a responsibility this morning, so uh, we are in a series called Love God, Love People, The Heart of Discipleship, and so um, we've been kind of unpacking how God the Holy Spirit shapes and molds us more fully into lovers of God and lovers of people. And last week, Joe uh, did the first half of this section of scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse number one, where he talked about us being a, a living sacrifice as our spiritual act of worship. What I wanna do is I, I wanna unpack the back half of that verse and talk a, a little bit of brass tacks as to how that looks. Um, just as a reminder for those of you who were not here, um, J Joe was talking about uh, how we're called to live, the Latin phrase for what he preached last week was quorum Deo. We're called to live uh, before the face of God, or the way that it's presented uh, in the early church whenever they use the term quorum Deo, they, they used it to express that God is expecting our highest and best in all of life and that we are called to live our entire life, this is the phrase, Coram Deo, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. I'll say that again. That when Paul calls us to live a life of sacrifice and that we're to be these living sacrifices, what he's really saying is that our whole life is meant to be, is meant to be lived in the presence of God 
under the authority of God and to the glory of God. Now, this is no small thing, but really the early church fathers were using this phrase to point back to what our first parents experienced in the Garden of Eden. Think about it. Our first parents, when they were created by God and God breathed life into them, they lived their whole existence for a whole three chapters, not even three, two, um, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. And ever since chapter three, God's been working to redeem and restore us back to that place. And now, so when Romans 12, when Paul calls us to this, uh, this is ultimately what he's saying. He's saying, now that Jesus Christ has become our temple, he has become our sacrifice, he has become our high priest, now through the new and living way that is the body, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we are invited into this kind of living again like our first parents. That now we not only are forgiven of our sins, but we're empowered by God's spirit as we put faith in Jesus to live our lives like our first parents again. Now, what I wanted to say is as I was listening to the sermon, because I actually have had a chance to be in gathering uh, the last few Sundays, as I was listening to the sermon, um, and I don't know if you felt this way, but I definitely did, how many of you were relieved when Joe finally got to point three? Anybody else? Because, I mean, he's preaching so faithfully, and everything that he's saying is true, but every time he says something more true, I get more convicted. And I'm like, would he just, like, ease back a little bit here? Right? It's like, and God wants your highest and best, and when you bring your lame sacrifices, this is how God feels. He's like, let's turn to Haggai. I'm like, let's leave. I just, or Malachi. I'm just like, oh, no. He just continues. And here's the thing. If you weren't feeling that way, if you're like, nope, every time he said it, I'm like, confirmation, that's me. I just want you to know you're either delusional, okay, or really, really not self-aware. Because as he's lining this stuff out, all that's happening in my heart is saying, I'm not giving God my highest and best every moment. In fact, I, I don't live my life in the presence of God, per se, or at least I don't like to think that I'm in the presence of God, because then what would that mean if I really genuinely thought that Jesus was always there in all of my actions, interactions, and then it gets even deeper, all of my internal thoughts, all the things that I'm thinking about you when you don't know I'm thinking it about you, and Jesus' presence is there. I always said Jesus would be the worst to play hide-and-go-seek with. <laughs> you know? It's like when you get to heaven, there's certain childhood games that you're just not going to want to play with Jesus. Um, he knows. But I don't want to live cognitively like that, and so sometimes I try to hide away. Much like our first parents after the fall, I want to pull away from Jesus' presence in order to do what my heart really desires to do. I don't want to live under the authority of God. Sometimes I want to be autonomous. I want to make decisions on my own for my own good and well-being. And I don't want to always live to God's glory. Every once in a while, I want somebody to say, you are a snowflake. You're a bit of all right. I like you. And for me to say, I am. And so he's preaching, and I'm just so grateful that he got to point three. And if you weren't here, point three was, no one lives this way, and this is where the cross was necessary. That no one lives their lives as a good, acceptable, and perfect sacrifice. We're going to read Romans 12, verse 2 again. But you ever thought about why would Paul say acceptable, good, and perfect? And he thinks that all three of those things are the same. And yet, if your son came home and he had an acceptable score, or he had a good score, or he had a perfect score, you would all think that those were different, right? Answer, because Old and New Testament, God only accepts perfect so if you think, well, I'll just offer my acceptable, or I'll offer my pretty good, Paul says, only perfect encapsulates all of that. And last week, Joe said, and none of us are perfect. Thank God for the cross. So I was happy with point three. I was like, 
all of my notes in light of this. I, I liked that part. And I hope that you did too. I hope it was a, a pressure release valve for your soul. However, it doesn't take away the seriousness of God's call to us in the New Testament to live these kind of lives. So, here, so here's what I want to do. No one in here was born again and immediately led into this kind of worshipful life. Like none, none of you were immediately saved and then all of a sudden you're living quorum Deo just before the face of God. It probably felt that way. It's kind of like when you go on your first date with your significant other, right? Like falling in love is a euphoric experience. And so when you fall in love with Jesus, there's a euphoric experience. I remember for me, you know, I, I started listening to songs I would never listen to, singing and writing and all these things. But deep down, I know that didn't immediately just fall into Coram Deo. So what, what did happen? No, we are, and, and this has already been said, but I'll say it again. No, we are trained and formed by God over time. Retrained by God to worship him fully like this. And remember, when I say retrained, I'm not talking about particularly outward action. I'm talking about God retraining our loves over and over and over again. This is how God shapes us. He molds us. Now, what I want to talk about this morning is, but how does he go about that? It's like, how does he go about the reshaping? See, the good news is that God didn't leave us empty-handed here. He didn't expect us to figure it out on our own, but God has used a very specific set of Christian habits and practices to train the hearts of his people. He's done this since the very beginning. Some people call them spiritual disciplines. Some people call them rhythms of grace. The book that we have out in the foyer right now that we uh, provided for our resource booth for this series by a guy named James Smith, uh, it's called You Are What You Love. He calls them spiritual liturgies, but ultimately they all mean the same thing. They are these habits and practices. In a nutshell, they're repetitive acts of obedience that have been designed by God to do three things, to redeem, to reshape, and to reclaim your deepest longings. That's what disciplines are. Never thought about that, did you? When you first came out of Jesus and people gave you a Bible and said, start reading this, you didn't think what was really happening there is what they should have said is, as you read this and make it a habit, God is redeeming, reshaping, and reforming your deepest longings and reorienting your heart back to him. That's what he's going to do through this. So, this morning, I want to talk about the disciplines briefly. I'm not going to have uh, tons of time. And then, I want to get to Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. And, then, and I hope by then you're asking three questions, and I want to answer those three questions, and here's what they are. Number one. What's actually going on when you enroll in the spiritual disciplines? Like, what's happening in the heart? Um, so, I already mentioned some. God's reshaping, and he's re but what's actually going on? Number two, why are they actually so difficult to make a part of your everyday routine? Is anybody else there? I know we're in church, but come on. Anybody else? Why is it so tough and arduous? If God wants this and he's God, why is it not more easy? To just wake up and go, let's pray. <laughs> I don't feel that way. You know, I wake up, I only see good out of like one eye. Trying to like tiptoe over my toddler, stub my toe, you know, say a Christian curse word or something, you know. And then it's not easy. So why isn't it? And then lastly, how do we overcome the resistance we experience? So before we hop in there, here's what I want to do. Pray with me this morning that Jesus would reveal himself to us and make a case no matter where you stand maybe you're not even sure what you believe this morning pray with me that Jesus would make a case that he's worthy of not just our faith but our love we pray with me because he can make that case he does still make that case so if you'll bow your heads with me I want to pray for that 
Father, we, we're so grateful the gospel's true. In our short time here together this morning, would you, by your mercy, shine forth your beautiful Son to us? Jesus, make yourself known and make a case for yourself, even though we know you don't have to, but you do. You've done it for many, many, many years and for many, many, many people. So, Lord, would you do it for us all over again? We trust you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul uses two competing words. He often does this in the letters, right? Paul will use words like light and darkness or flesh and spirit or the works of the law and grace. Paul always juxtaposes terms to kind of show you the difference and the beauty of the new covenant. In this particular text, he has on one side of the aisle the world and the pattern of the world. And on the other side of the aisle, he has, and he doesn't explicitly say it, but ultimately he's implying the pattern of God. So the pattern of the world that we are tempted to conform to, and then the pattern of God that we ought to actively look to be transformed by. What does he mean by the world? I've always thought that this is confusing because First John says that we should not love the world or anything in the world. And then if you just flip back in the English language, John 3.16, the most famous verse in all the Bible says that Jesus died because he loved the world so much. So it's like, so what exactly is the Bible trying to tell us here? It's like, hate the world. But the whole reason you're saved is because Jesus did the opposite. Well, the reason that that's so confusing is because in English, we have these two terms that mean uh, completely different things, right? The English language can be really confusing. In the Greek language, these two terms mean completely different things, right? They mean, on one end, the world being God's love for human beings and people, and Jesus loved human beings, people, the ones that he created so much that he was willing to die for us. And when 1 John says that we should hate the world, or here particularly where Paul says that we should not be conformed to the world, Paul is referring to the world as a system of fallenness that has infiltrated the earth since Genesis 3. If you're not a Christian in the room, I, I want to help you. This idea of the fall is our explanation as believers for why everything in the world is so broken. We believe that God did not make a broken world, he made a good world, and he called it good. And then it wasn't until three chapters into the book of Genesis that there was a schism, there was a fracture, there was a brokenness that entered, and that entered through sin and the disobedience of our first parents. And so Paul tells us in Romans 12, when he refers to the term the world, he's saying, don't be conformed to this set of values, these hardwired dispositions that are completely set against God and the things of God. Don't can let yourself be conformed to this. Now, I want to make mention here that it's, it's not coincidental, but important that Paul uses the word pattern and that he has conforming to the pattern of world on one, on one side and trans, being transformed by the pattern of God on the other. Because this idea of pattern is lending itself to what we're going to talk about in the, in the spiritual disciplines and why the habits of grace matter. Paul's saying here that there is a pattern or a repetition, this kind of each and every day habit of the world that we need to try to stay away from. And instead, we need to look to actively engage in a different kind of pattern or habit. So 
I have a slide. I'd love to put that slide up if you guys can uh, of the different spiritual disciplines. It's kind of small. Forgive me. Or small on mine. Is it big on y'all's? Yeah, it's big here. Small for me. These are not limited to everything the Bible says. But I wanted to put this up here because I wanted to make mention. Every time I say habits of grace, this is what I'm talking about. Many of you have heard of these things. Some of them are going to be like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, Like, for instance, if you get onto the bottom there, uh, other mentionable disciplines, feasting. You're like, when I eat, that's legit? (laughs) Like, it is. (laughs) Okay. Um, So some of them are great. And then some of them, you go up to the top uh, top right and you say fasting and you know that abstaining from food is also one of the disciplines and you're like oh I knew I didn't like church so I, I broke them down and this is not from me this is from theologians disciplines of engagement and disciplines of withdrawal disciplines of engagement are the things that God calls us to to pursue in relationship with others and the disciplines of withdrawal are the things that God calls us to pull away with him for the sake of getting alone and isolating specifically for renewal so you have things like prayer, fasting, reading, which reading would be study and devotion, uh, meditation, silence and solitude, rest and Sabbath, right? All of these are wired throughout Scripture. God's been doing this. Think about it. Rest and Sabbath is not like this new idea that we decided to do a sermon series on like a couple years ago. Like God actually said that a long time ago. It's crazy. Like there's new studies coming out from doctors that say, hey, if you take one day of rest every single week, it actually helps all of your biological mechanisms in your brain and your, and your heart's more healthy. And you're like, oh, shocking, right? Real shocker. You know, God created us and, and it's a shock that we need a day off, right? Um, and then on the other side, you have things like corporate worship, confession, submission, service, community and fellowship, celebration, evangelism. These are things that God calls us to engage one another with for the sake of shaping our loves. And in Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, Paul says that we're not the only ones who have a pattern. That the world itself has a pattern. And when I say pattern, think of fabric. Whenever you see a, a, a beautiful blanket, how that beautiful blanket with its beautiful pattern was created is it was stitched and woven together with repetitive actions over and over and over again to create this beautiful pattern. Over and over, weaving and weaving and weaving this color thread here at this point over and over and over again. And Paul says that Christians aren't the only ones with a pattern, but that ultimately every human being has habits and patterns that they follow. And it's all developed based on whatever you think the good life is. That's what you're going to be pursuing. And you're going to develop patterns that hopefully will get you there. Paul says the world has a pattern and God has a pattern. Now, here's the scary thought. You don't have to actively be aware of your disciplines and habits for them to be shaping you every day. Is that scary? Like some of you guys are like, actually, I'm really random. I don't really have a pattern. I promise you do. I promise it. And here's the thing. You don't even have to be aware of it. You didn't have to actually sit down and write them down for them to be shaping your heart. They already are. Here's an example. Best example I can give. Um, Every year, whenever I was in student ministry, we used to take the staff retreat to the Guadalupe River. Anybody ever been tubing, right? We're Texans. Hopefully you have. If you haven't, shame on you. Um, Take a six-pack of sodas, all right? (laughs) Kick back. That's right. I was careful. Wrote that down. Get scorched by the, you know, sun for six hours as you float down into oblivion. It's glorious. It's a, it's a rite of passage for a Texan, okay? Paul says this, we're, the world is like a group of tubers going down the Guadalupe River, and the current that carries us is the world. He says, here's what Paul wants you to know. Don't just lay back and let life happen to you. 
That's what he's saying here. Now, I know for the most part in this room, because I imagine that most of you are like me, and what you want is for somebody to tell you, if you just ride the current of life, it's all going to end up okay. That's what I want to hear. When things are difficult and tough, I want somebody to come along and just say, listen, just ride it out, man. It'll be all right. And Paul says, no, it's not going to be all right if we just sit back and let the current go. Let the current take us. The truth is, all of us, if we just sit back and let the tube take us, we're headed in the wrong direction because of sin. That's scary, right? Now, I know you're, some of you guys are like, man, give me some hope here. All right, check this out. You don't operate this way with your kids, do you? Like children are a perfect example that they have to be taught not to misbehave. Like children are born and they immediately start doing things that you're like, who taught you that stuff? And then some of them are like, daddy, you did. And you're like, oh. But then some of it's like, I know I didn't do that because I don't do that stuff, you know? Um, as a parent, you are disciplining your children in the hopes that they're going to learn habits of good behavior, and that's going to become a reflex for their heart in the future, right? That's the hope. Like, like check this out. Hopefully, you're not just saying, just let them go. It all, it all works out. Like, when you dropped your kid off at the children's ministry, I hope whoever was there didn't say, hey, our philosophy and motto is, let them be. Just hope it all works out. Hey, see you after church. No. Like right now, your children are probably being told, no, we don't do that. Please sit here. They're being redirected constantly, and you know why? Because they're headed in the wrong direction if they're not. Paul says, similarly so, there's no such thing as laissez-faire discipleship. Passive discipleship's not in the Bible. God is constantly redirecting and reorienting our hearts because he knows we are children that need it. So, Let's give some application here. What does that look like? Every time you pick up your scripture in the morning to read, to meditate, to ingest the word, you are anchoring yourself off midstream. The chaotic river of the world is, is, is pulling you down, but you're anchoring off, and you're essentially saying, I'm not going to let my values, my desires, my moral compass be dictated to me by celebrities, TV shows, political tides. Check this out, guys. Look me right in my eyes by Facebook but I'm going to incline my ear to God's voice this morning. Every morning, every time you take time to Sabbath and rest, you're anchoring yourself off in the madness of a world that tells you that the only way to get on top is to be busy. The only way to the good life is to be busier than your neighbor. When you Sabbath, you're saying, I refuse to believe that. Every time you sit in silence and solitude and you listen for God's voice over your life, you're anchoring yourself off and you're confronting the inner critic that some of you guys have with the truth of what God thinks about you. You're confronting the father of lies who accuses you and you're listening for the voice of your heavenly father. You're confronting the one who weighs you down your conscience and keeps you in darkness. Check this one out. Every time you decide to pray and make it a habit to pray, you're anchoring yourself off to who matters most in the world. And what happens to me, at least, is I get shocked by how easily I drift downstream. <laughs> when I pray, I get shocked because I lose sight so often about what matters most in the world. Think about this for a second. The things that we get angry about, prayer reorients me. The things I lust over, the things I'm devastated by, the things that disappoint me, they're all put in perspective by the presence of God when I pray because I'm anchored off. You see, 
I can continue on. When we gather together with Jesus, we are anchoring ourselves off to hear the word preached to us, that the word would be put into our mouths to sing, that we would partake in communion together. We're anchoring ourselves off in the stream that we find ourselves in. Because can we all agree that whenever we walk out, there's, there's a stream, there's a current, and it'll pull us. And the spiritual disciplines are not just mere things that we ought to do because we're Christians. They're the only way to truly and completely obey God's call to love God and others well. It's the only way. It's the only way. And the reason that we know this is because we don't recruit people for the military and not send them to boot camp, right? Because if we sent people that we recruited for the military into battle with no training, we're setting them up for failure. Our God is no different. When we're called into his kingdom, he retrains our loves because he's calling us to do something very significant and he knows it's a battle. And so he trains us. Now, so number one, how, what's really going on? Well, what's going on in the spiritual disciplines is this, healthy spiritual disciplines shape our hearts by anchoring them to God. So how do they get shaped? The spiritual disciplines are like that anchor in the middle of the river to keep you. That's what they are. Okay, now, number two, why are they so tough? Answer, this is not an easy one, okay, but here's the answer. Number two, spiritual disciplines are tough because our deepest longings are misguided and indiscernible on our own. Some of you get that. Some of you are like, no, I'm, I'm pretty self-aware. Well, I agree. Let's, let's walk through that a little bit, okay? Number one, the spiritual disciplines are tough because Satan has sinful purposes for you and for me. Now, we have to acknowledge this one. I know some of us are like anti-charismatic, and so when I even mention the devil, you'd rather it just be your sin's your only problem. But I need to be honest with you. The Bible also says there's an enemy of your soul who hates you and me, but even more than he hates you and me, he hates the glory of God. And so all of the attacks that might come against you and me really have one end in and of themselves, and that's to defame God's glory. He's not really interested in you that much. You are a byproduct of his focus, okay? He hates God and therefore hates you because you're an image bearer of God. Does this make sense? So his purpose is in design, and everything that's schemed around you is schemed in such a way to rob your affections away from God, and really it doesn't matter. You can have a litany of things that you can love as long as it's not God, and he's totally fine with that. Now, I'm not going to go too far into that, but just consider that. What I mean is anything else, even good stuff. If you love it most, he's happy. And therefore, he is scheming to lead you that way. Now, we have to take it a step further, though. We can't only blame the big bad devil for the things that are hard, right? Here's why. The book of James tells us this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So, the, the devil may start a fire in your heart, but you had the spark and the gasoline available for him. You handed him the matches. Does this make sense? So you were already offering up the fodder for the fire when it started because your heart is sinful, and therefore you already had the misguided inclinations. Joe already talked about this, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. We're all born worshipers, but we are all born in this fallen world as worshipers of God. This is the problem. So we're all born with an orientation toward loving something ultimately, but none of us are born loving ultimately that which actually deserves our worship. So it's tough. We're all born with an idea of the good life that's completely skewed. Another way to put it is that our hearts are like a compass that are supposed to point true north, but they point 
completely a different way. And even if they are just one degree off, could you imagine what would happen if a ship started at one side of the Atlantic and tried to go over to Europe with one degree off on its compass? It could end up crashing into another boat really quickly, right? And all of us are born with misguided compasses, and we're on this little tiny ball of dust called Earth, and then we're put there together with like six billion of us. So there's no wonder that we have a lot of crashes with each other, right? <laughs> all of our orienteering skills are totally off. And so we're frustrated because we become our own worst enemies, but we also become each other's enemies because you get in the way of my satisfaction because I'm not actually after God, I'm after other things, and so are you, and so we cross paths, and sometimes we develop comrades, and then sometimes we develop armies in order to get this good life together, and we fight each other all the time over it. Now, our hearts don't point true north, so you might be thinking, I need to be more self-reflective, and I would say to you, kind of. Paul does say that we need to test our our hearts, we need to test our motives. But here's the problem with that is that we have indiscernible longings. And what I mean by that is that we don't even know what we truly want most some of the time. Anybody else ever experienced that? I'll give you an example. Um, fair warning, it's a Harry Potter reference, okay? So I'm just gonna throw that out there right now. My wife and I like Harry Potter. If you think that's witchcraft, I'd love to not talk to you about that, okay? <laughs> um, so just throwing that out there. In the first book of this series, Harry, who's the uh, protagonist of the story, is this little orphaned boy who does not have parents. His parents died upon him being a little child. And he finds himself in this world of magic, and there's all sorts of things he's never seen before. And he sits in front of this mirror, and the mirror is called the Mirror of Erised. He looks at himself in this mirror, and he's alone, but what he sees in the mirror is his family around him, loving him, hugging him, embracing him. He turns around in joy, hoping that maybe they were there, and they're not. So he asks his headmaster, Dumbledore, in the story and says, what is this mirror? And he answers, well, this mirror is uh, a mirror of desire. It shows a man what his deepest longings truly are. He says, if a man was the happiest person on earth, he would look at himself in the mirror and he would see himself standing there just as he is. And so later in the story, when Harry is searching for uh, a stone, this stone represents a, an opportunity for him to save the day. If he finds the stone, he can save the school from this big bad uh, antagonist of the story and so he's obsessing over finding this stone and he says if I could just find the stone everything will be okay and one day he realizes I know what I'll do I'll run I'll find myself in front of the mirror what I want most is to find the stone so when I look in the mirror I will see myself getting the stone and I'll know the location of the stone and I'll save the day so he runs he hides himself in this cloak in the middle of the night pitter patters up finds himself in front of the mirror looks into the mirror anticipating that he's going to see finally what he longs for and what he finds himself face to face with is his family hugging him and it says that he just falls asleep, crying in front of the mirror. That's what the book tells us. Well, what, what happened here? See, even what he thought he wanted most, he was deceived by because at the deeper parts of his heart, what he wanted was his family. See, he thought circumstantially, what I want most is the stone, so clearly I'll see myself getting the stone, but what he didn't know is that the mirror doesn't lie. And the mirror knew that deeper down even than that was a longing to see mom and dad whom he'd never met. You and I are no different than this. And the harder part is we have no mirror every single day that will do this for us. So many of us, we ask ourselves, why is it 
that I struggle so much? Why am I susceptible with not wanting to read my Bible or pray? And I have to give you the hard news. The answer is really more simple than you think. It's that you think you want God most, but there's something deeper that you and me can easily be deceived by. I know that's hard. Can I, can I try my best to shepherd you for a second? The truth is I'm that way. I can make excuses about my time, my busyness. I can make excuses of all the reasons why I can't find time to pray or read. And I have a child and it's tough. And I'm more of a night person. I'm more of a morning person. I don't know. A million reasons. But the truth is deep down I don't desire God the way I think I do. I think he's on the throne of my hearts, but there's always something deeper vying for my true deepest affections. Jeremiah 17, 9, this is the good news, is that we're not unique in this. This is what Jeremiah says. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Another way to say that is who can discern it? Who really knows what they want most? I'll tell you, we do have this gracious opportunity and that is that Jesus does Jesus knows the depths of our own heart this is why whenever Jesus showed up on the scene in the gospels everyone was astonished at his teaching because he not only taught the Torah not only did he have new and amazing insights not only did he lead them to their heart and not just the letter of the law but Jesus would look at a woman at the well and then discern her thoughts and desires and confront her on them the scribes and the Pharisees would get together and they would start to plot and scheme. They'd come to Jesus. They'd say, well, we're going to get him here. And then he wouldn't even address the issue. He'd go to their hearts and they would say, what kind of man is this? He discerned their intentions. The disciples would try to be talking about who was greater. Who's greater, John or James or Bartholomew? I'm like, Bartholomew, your name already just takes you out of the running for greatest, bro. They're all talking, who's greater, who's greater? Jesus standing in the, in the, behind them, not even with an earshot, says, what is it that you reason about among yourselves? Let me tell you a story about the true greatest. And they all step back. What kind of man is this? You see, we may not be able to discern our own desires, but we have a gracious Savior who does. We might be deceived by our own hearts, but our God is not deceived by our actions, our words, or anything. He looked at the Pharisees and says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. And this is what made the Pharisees angry because they say, what kind of man can tell me about my heart? Have you ever been in that situation before? How are you going to judge my motivations? You probably would have been frustrated at Jesus. I would have. Because if you guys came up to me and said, hey, uh, what I know about you is you just preached that sermon, but you don't really love anybody in that room. Like, who in the heck are you? This is what Jesus did, like, on the regular. Just showed up to his disciples. But, okay, uh, know what you're thinking, know what you're thinking. Um, hey, Peter, back over there. Stop smoking the cigarette. All right, get over here. I see you. He just immediately knew, discerned, spoke to. But here's the, here's the difficulty for us is if we don't have the mirror, how do we overcome how do we overcome? The answer, point number three, and this is how I'll close, the only way to overcome is to admit our need for Jesus. Now, I know when I read that, you're like, oh, here we go. It's like another, you know, duh. I agree. Um, just, as a, just as a tidbit, I spent a lot of time on sabbatical trying to work through some of like the deeper parts of my heart, and I always come back to the things that we're teaching our children back there are the things that actually are the most important. 
The things I sing with my son late at night are the only things that really anchor me off. Like I, I can read some of the most deep, uh, in-depth theological books and find myself there. And the truth is it always bubbles back up to this. This is really what God's after. So, so if you will, and, and to the best of your ability, lean in your ears here for the next few minutes. Paul starts Romans 12 like this. And I think that him starting like this is the most important part of the entire appeal in the first two verses. He starts like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, there's a little footnote for you there, gals, in the ESV. And if you go down to the bottom, it says brothers and sisters. It's important. I appeal to you. How do I appeal to you? You are children of God, rescued by the mercies of God. So what does Paul know that you and I don't know? We have to be raptured by the fact that God is our Father and has lovingly extended his mercy to us, or we will never live a life of quorum Deo, and we will never engage in the spiritual disciplines that will train us to do so, because we have to come at it from a perspective of children. God loves you as a child. Dave Mathis wrote a book called Habits of Grace, and he says this, we don't grow in the spiritual disciplines by setting out to grow. Well, that's interesting. He says we grow by setting out to taste the goodness of God. Think about that for a second. You don't grow in, in the spiritual disciplines by setting out to be smart. You grow in the spiritual disciplines by setting out to know Jesus, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Check this out. We, it, it, I hope that you're getting this idea that, yes, it's so important to have the spiritual disciplines in order to truly live a life of worship to God. But what's even more pertinent this morning is I pray that you don't walk out of here and try to be a master at your spiritual disciplines without knowing that the very reasons they exist in the first place is to wrangle your heart back into the arms of God every single day. That's the purpose. You need Jesus, you need to approach the disciplines with this desire. You are a child of God who has been extended mercy. You're not who you used to be. You were bought with a price. You need the gospel message deeply and firmly rooted in your heart. Dwight L. Moody said this, the Bible was not given to us to increase our knowledge, but to save our lives. The Bible was not given to you to increase your knowledge about God, but to save your lives by the grace of God. So I want to end how Paul begins here by encouraging you in this way. You are children of God. He is your father. This morning's message is more than an invitation into practicing more habits of grace. It's an invitation into communion with your father. You've been washed in the mercies of God. Jesus has already pardoned you. If you're in Christ this morning, you're already swimming in the mercy of God of our Savior. When you feel like you're drowning in the current of the world, your father is less than an arm length away. He does not consider you too far gone. If you know in your heart this morning, I've, I have already succumbed to spiritual conformity. That's, that's who I am. I want to remind you of this. Jesus is the good sacrificial worshiper. Jesus is the acceptable sacrificial worshiper. Jesus is the perfect sacrificial worshiper and everything that is Christ's is now yours by faith and so now as, as you come to the table this morning in communion 
Can I encourage you with something for a second? Hear me on this. Come with your weakness. Come with your hearts. Come with your disordered, messy, indiscernible desires to the table of the Lord. Don't be like our first parents who hide away in those things because now you have an advocate. Come with those things. As you take the bread, be reminded of the broken Savior who desires to make you whole, not in some future tense, but right now this morning. When you take the cup, be reminded of the blood of the Savior shed for your adoption. Be reminded as you partake, the Father bids you closer to him, for his love for you is great. And finally, after having bringing, brought your concerns and your cares and your anxieties and your fears to God, experience his love for you that is not swayed by any of those things. If you're not a believer this morning, I just want to say this. Please refrain from taking communion at the table, and here's why. Instead of just drinking juice and eating bread, we would love for you to consider Jesus in this time that you might experience the goodness of God. This is a symbol, but we want to offer you the real thing. This is a means of grace. Jesus is grace. So in this time, we'd love for you to consider, we're going to have a prayer of belief on the screen. For anyone in the room this morning that might think, I would like, I feel something tugging at my heart, we would love for you to consider maybe praying through that. And then lastly, there's going to be prayer volunteers on the sides of the room. And when we're done taking communion, we encourage you to go to those prayer volunteers and say, I need you to help me pray. Because us gathering together like this is part of that. Lastly, and I was graciously reminded of this one, there's a gluten-free option in the middle. That's good care right there, right? If you'll stand to your feet, let me pray for us. Father, what a beautiful gospel we're wrapped up in. Oh, Lord, for those in this room who feel the weight of their own inability to develop patterns in their life that, that shape and mold them, I pray right now you would relinquish the guilt of the enemy off their lives. The shame that comes with feeling like you know the right thing to do but not having the ability to do it, Lord, would you come in, swoop in with your grace and lift our eyes to you. Lord, I believe with my heart, many in this room long to know you. Many in this room long to be nearer to you. And at times are so discouraged and weary that they don't know how to pick themselves up. Lord, let them know now that they can't pick themselves up, but you are a great lifter of our head. Holy Spirit, come now. Breathe the life that only you have to offer. We don't come now, Lord, hoping that we could give each other platitudes of Christian sayings in order to make it another week. We come now to hope to experience the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what we hope, Lord. It's what we desire and it's what we need. May all the truth that we sing land in our hearts to create a hundredfold harvest. <laughs> May it change what we do this week. And Lord, as we take from the table, and taste of the bread and drink of the wine. May we be reminded 
to what lengths you're willing to go to make us kids of your Father. We're so grateful, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would come and take.